Is this play a one act? And uh, how do we define that? everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We're excited to have you joining us again, and we're excited to have you joining us for episode two of Mini Months. Yeah, yeah, episode two. We're clipping along through our themed month. Uh, hopefully you all are, are are out there enjoying some good internet content, and we're glad to be able to continue adding to to the list of things for you to listen to during this time. Yeah, and, and we're just having a great time with these one-acts. We, you know, Jackson and I, we, we love to prepare. We love reading scripts. We love all the reviews and the research and the production photos we get to do. But there's something nice about it being a short play. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) You get to like really dig into it. Like this time I really got to slow, especially with a play like this, as we're going to reveal what the play is, it it pays off to have the time to kind of slowly reread a page every once in a while. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. The play that we're talking about today is, of course, uh, Far and Away by Carol Churchill. Yeah. Far Away by Carol Churchill. This is our third time doing a Carol Churchill play. There's not too many playwrights that we've come to a full three times. We've had a few that we've done four. Uh, and not that many that we've done three. So uh, Carol Churchill has appeared in three of our four seasons, and, and of course she has. She's one of the mainstays, one of the most important voices in Western theater, uh, even still now. And uh, so we're just, we, we love to talk about her scripts. They're so fascinating. Mad Forest and Vinegar Tom are the two scripts that we've talked about so far. And this might be the most obscure of the three. Yeah, it's. I think it's. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's also the most recent of the three. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's only it's twenty her... years old. It came out in the two thousands. Yeah. I'm stealing from your context a little bit, but uh, it's, right. it's about a twenty year old play, and it's got some timely things to say. I'm sure we'll talk about it, but it is. I'm just. I'm fascinated to hear some of your interpretations of what went on, because like all Churchill scripts, there's some interpretation in it. There's so <laughs> much room for interpretation in this play. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to get to jump into it. Before we do that. Though we do want to ask everybody out there to head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Again, patreon.com slash no script podcast. Over there, you can become a supporter of the show. Mini month is a great time to do it. If you like what we do, if you like our taking themed months every season, focusing in on a subject or a style or a playwright or whatever, please head over there and become a supporter. We love what we do, it's just not free to do what we do. So we're asking for your help to support the cost of production. You can join over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. And what that will do is set you up to give monthly donations to support the cost of the show. The lowest tier is $1 a month. So just $1 a month. As I like to say frequently, I know many of you out there who would just give me $12. That would be the yearly cost if I walked up to you in the street and asked for it. In fact, you'd probably give most strangers $12 if they just walked up to you in the street and asked for it. So please head on over there and support the show there. And a really, really big thank you to everybody who's already become a supporter of the show. That means so much to us. We love what we do and we love to have those supporters out there, uh, you know, believing in what we do enough to contribute to it monetarily. So a big thank you to them as well. 
Yeah, we are so blessed by the listenership of this podcast, and thank you to all all of you who have made the choice to continue supporting the con- the podcast over on patreon.com slash podcast. We will see you over there. And now, back to the script. Back to the script. All right, so we're going to contextualize, contextualize it just a little bit for you this week. Um, there's not a whole lot of context for me to give you. This is a, uh, uh, like Jacob said, this is maybe a little bit uh, less well-known play of Carol Churchill's. Um, nonetheless, though, it had a it had and has a still-running career in, in both uh, regional theaters and on large stages. The original production was at the Royal Court Theater, in London in November of uh, November slash December of 2000. Uh, that, that production ran for a while. Uh, that's the production that's credited in the front of our play. It also uh, was on uh, at, or at New York Theater's Workshop in New York City from November of 2002, so two years later, and it ran all the way to uh, January of 2003. Um, it, continues, it continued after that to have a strong regional uh, theater life. Uh, the the most recent one that I have, we were commenting on on uh, the the uh, the rocketing into Wikipedia that St. Cloud State University had. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they produced it uh, just last year, though November of 2019 was uh, that production. So this is a play that is still being done around. It's as we're going to jump into. It's a play that you can uh, speak about a lot of issues with. Um, it's a it's a little bit uh, certainly not a blank slate, but an open slate for other issues to be placed upon it. So I'm I'm not at all surprised that it continues to be produced in regional theaters around the world. So this would be the point where we normally head over to synopsis, but maybe sort of at the end of this context section, Jackson, before we get into what's actually in the play, the content, we might take some time here to talk about its form. Obviously, Mini Month is a month dedicated to the form of a one-act play. We've already, or last week, we already discussed uh, Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All to You, and that is a kind of part and parcel standard one-act play. When you think about one-act plays, that that kind of play is a pretty classic example. There's a, a unity to the script in that the whole thing takes place in the amount of time it takes to do the show. You know, it takes 30 minutes to an hour to do the show. The play takes place over 30 minutes to an hour. There's no scene breaks. There's no changes of location, anything like that. It's one thing straight through. So in that sense, that's one act. Very classic example of a one act. And the reason we picked Far Away is that Far Away, beyond being just a great play by Carol Churchill and a really popular one act, if it is one, which is what we're about to get into, is at the other end of the one act spectrum into almost mostly being a short play. I mean, what do you think, Jackson? Is this play a one act? And uh, how do we define that? That's that's a good question. And one act, I think we're, we're, we're wandering into the, the zone of... Uh confusion around one act plays that just exists with one act plays one act plays has a variety of definitions that can be deployed to justify a play being one act <laughs> i think the way i would justify this play as a one act is it is in fact one act um the the interior parts are scenes um and, and or at least could be defended as scenes and all take place over 30 pages 30 plus pages right yeah it's probably the strongest argument for it being something that you'd call a one act is that its length is short enough that you could potentially present it with another 
similarly lengthed story and make that one evening of theater. There's no intermission. And yet we've talked about other plays that are shorter and definitely don't have any act breaks. For example, Guards of the Taj, that's just a series of scenes. Um, Whereas this play has a division, you know, there's three parts, I guess, or three acts or three scenes, but then the second part of those three parts is subdivided further into smaller things. So you you could almost say it has three <laughs> acts and then a series of smaller scenes. Now, in this particular script, Carol Churchill does not call them acts. I knew as I was reading it, because I know Carol Churchill and her body of work, that she uses a variety of different titles and subtitles of you know, whatever you called the divisions of a script. So I, I grabbed all the Carol Churchill plays off my shelf and I started to look through to see how she's divided other scripts. Some scripts she straight up does act one, act two, scene one, scene two. Some of them she just does numbers. That's the case in Far Away. And then there's a script like Vinegar Tom, which is easily, we've talked about that script before, easily twice as long as this script. And yet that script is just, I think, 19 scenes. There's no subdivision beyond scenes, whereas this play has a subdivision into three, she just uses numbers in Far Away, one, two, and three, and then as I said, the second, number two, is then divided into two, one, two, 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 three. So on the one hand, Vinegar Tom, much longer play, but that play might be in some sort of strict sense, more of a one act, because the playwright did not divide the script into acts. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. And 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 just to tie it back to our argument for Sister Mary last week about having the unities, this play does not have a unity of place, does not have a unity of time. Um it it jumps around uh to at least two different locations. Um actually probably three three different locations and uh and three different times as well. Uh by years, uh we 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 take uh, big jumps in in the, between between the different acts or scenes of the play. Right. Yeah, the the initial stage directions in each of the larger subdivisions, 1, 2 and 3, it's uh, several years later is what it indicates. There's the one, whatever you call it, a scene or an act or a part one. And then in scene act part two, the initial stage direction is several years later. And then in scene act part three, whatever you call it, the initial stage direction is several years later. So definitely no unity in that sense. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a messy definition, right? I mean, is your definition of one act play a short play? Um, I liked I liked your definition of of it as one a play that could be done with another or two plays and make a full evening of theater. Um, I think that's a pretty good working definition. But as far as a dramatic or or literature definition, it's kind of wishy washy. Yeah, that's I mean that's what these first two scripts of mini month represent, and part of the reason why we paired them as first and second is that they are the at the other ends of the spectrum. Uh, Sister Mary Ignatius, you get a play that is definitely one act, really one scene from beginning to end. And in Far Away, you get something that's really just a short play. It's got three subdivisions and then, or it's got three divisions and then subdivisions beyond that that you could call acts and scenes, but it's definitely short. Further complicating the Far Away story is the fact that Churchill demands uh, that you only perform Far Away by itself. 
you you can't perform it in in uh, as as part of a evening of theater. I think if you try to get the rights, it even says like "Far Away" must be its own evening of theater. So she wants it performed like a full length and that it's its own thing. And yet, as I was doing research, I have found that there are regional theaters that have gotten permissions specifically from her to present the play alongside another of her short plays, one acts, whatever, called The Number. So I know that it's been done before, although if you initially just try to get the rights, it says that it must be performed standalone. Gosh, I wonder, though, if you could even do this play twice in a night. Like this play strikes me <laughs> strikes me as a play. We'll get into we'll get into some of the the kind of interpretation of this play later on. That and and I'm not surprised that you you would need a night to process this play. And I would almost be interested in seeing a, a house do it as you you do the play once you have a bit of discussion and then you do it again. <laughs> <laughs> that that would be interesting. Or I mean, the so many of Carol Churchill's scripts are this way. It, the play's so interpretable. That you could almost have two different ensembles, two different directors, two different yeah. production teams present the play, and you might get totally different experiences Absolutely. out of either production. And and not to tread too too far down the road into the synopsis before it's there, but like if if you're talking about those time, there's there's so much opportunity for silent storytelling in this play. There's big time jumps. How do you move from scene to scene? What story do you choose to tell to tie all the pieces together? All those sorts of choices make it make it really easy for a different cast and crew to tell a, a very similar but definitely different story. So I'm going to hop into the synopsis now, and I've been pondering for a little while now in preparation for recording this, how in the world I was going to <laughs> synopsize this play, <laughs> because so much of it is a large question mark, and you just sort of make guesses at what you suspect is happening based on the textual clues. So what I've decided is that I'm going to basically mimic what I did when when we did Guards at the Taj, which is just tell you about what happens in each part. And then if we end up going further into what might be going on around it, then we could you'll get some more synopsis out of that later on in the episode. But I just I couldn't figure out a way that isn't just what I think is happening. Right. Other than just telling <laughs> you the facts of what occurs in each part, act, scene, whatever. Mm-hmm. So three characters, Joan She's a girl of some age. <laughs> um, at least at the start of the play, a dependent age. Right. And then later in the play, she talks about a degree. So maybe she's at, uh, older than college age at that point, although the world is sort of nebulous. So I don't know if that's a specifically a college bachelor's degree. You know what I mean? And so she and I, when you look at production photos online, actresses of all ages play Joan. So it's a, a young person of some age. And then her aunt Harper and then Todd, uh, who's in, in the character descriptions, I think is interesting. He's specifically called a young man. Now, that could be an indication from the playwright that he is definitely supposed to be older than Joan. Or it could be that because we don't meet Todd until the middle section, part act two, whatever, and by that point it's been several years since we first met Joan, that Joan has grown up and maybe maybe at that point she's a young woman like he's a young man. Or, like I said, it could be an indication that he's supposed to be older than her. Not really sure. Uh, act, scene, part one, whatever you call it, just in the script it's just one 
um, is at Harper's home, and Joan has awoken in the middle of the night or perhaps has never been asleep. She comes down, and you learn a couple of things. You learn that she's at her aunt's house, staying there, that she's new to being at her aunt's house. We're not sure why she's staying there. And we learn that she's snuck out, and she's seen some things. She's seen her uncle... Uh, the the aunt tries to evasively give several different things that she might have seen. Well, it was just a party. Oh, he was just dragging a sack into the shed. Oh, there was no blood. But eventually, Joan kind of keep insisting on what she sees, and we learned she saw her uncle putting people from a truck into a shed, and then uh, attacking some of those people, beating them to the point where there's blood on the ground. Um, the aunt, and I don't know exactly how true this is, what interpretation we're supposed to get. The aunt claims that eventually, after being forced to admit it and, and under swearing Joan to secrecy, the aunt claims that they are helping people escape from something. These people were attacked and are in hiding from something, and that she and her husband, uh, Joan's uncle and aunt, are hiding these people in their shed and then are going to transport them to a safe place in the morning. And the reason why the uncle was attacking those people people was because some of them were traitors and their children maybe also were traitors and that's scene act part one um that's the whole thing and then scene act part two is several years later Joan and Todd, now we first we get introduced to Todd, they work in a hat shop or hat factory or hat craftsman's house i don't know <laughs> they work they make hats and they don't just make standard hats they make extravagant hats huge decorative interpretive artistic hats no idea why at this point they're making hats but they are and it take the scenes take place over several um this this is one this is a, one of the divisions two act scene part two whatever has several divisions within that there's like six mini scenes or scenes themselves whatever within it and their their hat that they're building each of them is building their own hat is slowly getting bigger they discuss all the extravagance of their hats this is where we get the mention that joan has a degree she says that she completed in school her degree hat so she went to hat school i guess and her degree hat was like a giraffe hat or something something and extravagant and so they're building these hats we're learning some things we're learning that sometimes they stay up late to watch the trials on tv they don't give us a lot about what those are but that's what that, one of the things that they talk about todd talks about the fact that the the hat company whatever that they work for is uh mistreating the workers misusing the contracts he has some problems and and joan is constantly encouraging him to go take his problems to the manager and demand change um so that's one thing that's happening one thing that's happening is that joan and todd who are new to each other at the beginning of two are sort of slowly falling for each other they're getting flirty and sort of romantic as it goes and the whole time they're building this hat in 2.5 i don't know if that's act two scene five whatever we've talked about that already in 2.5 um we get this odd, th it's just a stage direction, and what it says is that there's a parade of prisoners being led to execution, and that on each of these prisoners' heads is one of these extravagant hats. So we learn that they've been making these hats for prisoners to wear on a parade to their own execution. You assume that this is related to the trials we heard talk about earlier, and that's the whole of 2.5. You just this parade of people in these extravagant hats being led to execution. And 2.6, we learn that, that every week or so or month, however, if they talk about the parades are increasing in frequency. So it's like every week now, uh, there's a 
there's a hat winner. Somebody's hat is selected as the best hat, and it goes in a museum, and the rest of them are burned along with the bodies of all these prisoners. And that's the end of two of part scene act two, whatever. Part scene act three is several years later. It's back at Harper's home, and Todd is there now, and we learn that Joan has run away. And then we start to get all this information filled in about this war that's going on uh, between all the countries of the world, and not just all the countries of the world, but all the parts of the world. Animals are on different sides, and different um, professions are fighting against each other. Like, they are, they're all worried about the dentists and whether the dentists are on their side or not, and the computer technicians. All of creation, to quote Jackson from before we started recording, Jackson said this <laughs> phrase, all of creation is at war with itself in different ways they're fighting. We don't know really what about, other than they're fighting. They talk, and, and Harper and Todd are having this discussion because Joan is asleep. She apparently walked all day the previous day and is sleeping in. And they're talking about all the different animals. Oh, don't you hate deers? Because deer are untrustworthy. And then uh, later on it's revealed, no, the deer are on our side now. So we love deer. They've got these beautiful brown eyes. And it goes on and on and on. And then Harp, uh, Joan, I'm sorry, wakes up and describes how she fled from, I don't know if she was a soldier. It's not especially clear. She was certainly in a place where she was killing people. So I would imagine on the front lines of some battle. Um, and she fled. She deserted just to come see who we now learn is her husband, Todd. They'd been married between two and three. And she describes her walk from the battle zone, wherever that was, to Harper's house to, to see her husband to take a day of rest and safety. And that's the end of the play. Uh-huh. That was a wild ride. I'm sorry that was so long. <laughs> oh, no, no. But I, I, there's just, it's a very, there's a lot happens packed into like 30 pages in my script and 30 fairly well-spaced out pages. Yeah, um, easily not readable. Not a lot of text. It's a, it reads quick, but it plays, I've heard, about an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but so a lot happens, but what does any of it mean? Yeah. Well, and I, I think I'm guessing if if this is your first time experiencing the script is 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 Jacob's synopsis, your reaction at just kind of the what what <laughs> is is an appropriate reaction. I don't know that I would get to the end of this play and be like, unless I had prepped myself and read something about <laughs> Carol Churchill or about or about the theme of this play, I would I would be very empty at the end of this play, going like, wait, I'm I'm missing everything. Suddenly there's a war. What war? And who started the war? And where are these people? So so that's an appropriate reaction at the end of this. Kind of wondering what are the connection points of this this kind of strange story of these three people. So it's it's often called a dystopian script. If you read the reviews and the advertisements and the publicity when houses do the show, it's it's referred to as a dystopian script. And because it's a short play or a one act, whatever you'd call it, we don't have a lot of time to go in a bunch of detail. So Churchill doesn't really do a lot of work for us in imagining what this dystopian world, how we got to this dystopian world. But even from right away, you have the feeling that for even part one, you get yeah, the you feeling kind of have to that ask we live yourself, in a different world. What are the world. moorings of, of, of experience for us as the audience? Are we entering in, in, into a country in the world? Um, by the end of the play, they're quoting countries in the world. Um, are, are we entering into a specific historic moment? Um, and and asking to kind of interpret it through this this kind of abstract conver- series of conversations, um, 
and 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 these are the questions. <laughs> um, you're you're kind of. I think you're right to kind of wonder if we're just in a separate, almost dimension where we share some of the names for things. Some of this, there, there are similarities, but something is fundamentally different about this space of this play. I like the way that you put it too. That it initially, you don't know whether we're in the past, present, or future. Uh, you know that the uncle is hiding people allegedly who who need to get away from someone, and so. That that's a pretty universal story. <laughs> I mean, we know that there's trucks, so we're at least in a recent enough history that uh, that there's diesel engines, or you know, at the very least, some sort of car mechanics. But Churchill doesn't provide you with what year it is. So even as you're a production team, you know, I imagine as an audience member seeing the show, you get lots of clues: the decoration of the home, the costumes, about where and when, and how to interpret what what the story you're experiencing. But as a production team, you've got to create all that because look, hiding people from people happens a lot. You could, you could pick any time in the past hundred years, as long as we've had trucks and say, when was someone hiding someone from something? And you could go, did this happen during the Holocaust? Is he hiding Jewish people? Yeah, is it happening right now with uh, immigration across the, the Mexican border or, or, or any number of other immigration or people running from violence scenarios? And so that's sort of the experience of part one, at least in reading it, is we know we're in a world, past, present, or future, where something like this is happening. And so part two being so astoundingly strange is it really helps, I think. And it, it to me, it does not further confuse me. It further assures me that I'm in some sort of dystopian story, that I'm not supposed to be connecting this with historical events. They're making hats, mm -hmm. extravagant hats, and they're talking about things which make no sense, that she's gotten a degree in hat making, that the hats are for some parade, that lots of people make hats, and there's some sort of competition coming. All of this even before before we see the parade of executioners, that there's trials going on 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 the TV, public, big, major trials. All of this suggests to the the person experiencing at least a written version of the play. I live. I'm 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 working in a different modem than I'm used to. Mm -hmm. In in a yeah, there's there's something fundamentally that I don't understand. So I'm just going to engage whatever theme is being evoked by this play and not worry about. Or, or what this play is trying to tell me and not worry about placing it or confining it to a specific region, to a, a specific set of vernacular. Right, and I have to be prepared to experience things that are outside the realm of my ability to place this in a historical context. And that works, I think, very well to set us up for this wild parade of hats, which if it had just happened after part one, with none of this introduction stuff between Joan and Todd that help us figure out that, we li that we're, we're existing, we're, we're learning a story in a different world, I'm not sure I would have had any way to place this parade of prisoners and hats. But it's set up to build, it's almost like a new, um, a, a new introduction at the beginning of two, that to build to this moment of these parade of prisoners in wild hats. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, so what's going on in that scene? That scene, I feel like, has a lot of room for interpretation, a lot of room for uh, reading into what's happening. Um, what are the things that that you think are going on for for the not necessarily for the characters? Again, this is not like a character growth story necessarily, <laughs> yeah, but like what's going on in the world? What is the playwright trying to tell the audience through uh, that that scene or act two? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what Carol sure. Churchill was envisioning to communicate from this story. There's there's things that certainly ring to me about the images that, that make me think of things. I mean, the idea that these prisoners, these people who I assume are the people in the trials that they watch on television that have been found guilty. That's a connection I feel pretty confident in making, although it's not made explicitly for us. I assume this is this group of people, that they are being paraded to their execution says something about what's going on to me. It sets up that that these are a, a group of people that society hates enough or thinks are guilty enough that they want to participate in the execution process via parade, right? These aren't just people who've been found guilty of killing 20 people and they're quietly led away to be you know, executed via lethal injection. This is a public execution and, it, and then the bodies are burned publicly afterwards. So that suggests something to me about the world that I live in. There's there's certainly some hatred and some animosity uh, in the in the trial system that's going on. Then there's this additional level that they're dressed up. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 being they're being paraded. They're not just a parade. They're being given hats that that uh, uh, organization makes that gets contracts to make these hats for this parade. They're being, I I would assume, forcibly uh, put onto them, and then they are executed in them, and then subsequently burned with the hats on them. So, if there's so much there that could be going on. Some possible options. It's possible that there's this suggestion that um, they're making the prisoners into some sort of visual spectacle so that the parade seems um, happy. Right, They're, they've made these extravagant, artistic, hopefully beautiful hats. They talk about them as being beautiful and creative. The hats are not sullen and depressing; they're wild and colorful and cool. So that the parade is a, a happy event rather than a traumatic, sad one. That's at least one interpretation of what might be going on. Mm-hmm. I think another thing that struck me in reading this play is what's going on for uh, Joan and Todd. And, and kind of the commentary that the playwright is making on them, they are making these hats. They are a part of this system of parading people to their deaths. Um, I, we're, we're not given the guiltiness of these people in this play. We just know that on a weekly basis, um, the suggestion of the script for how many people are in this parade are more than 10. What about 20? 100? Like, that's a suggestion. Yeah. So I'm I'm working off of the, like, 100 people are going to be executed every week publicly as, like, a show with hats on. Um, every week this is happening. So so they are culpable yeah, and, and in that's that. Yeah, that's a pointed thing, too, because um, we know that the parades of executionees, uh, victims of execution, I don't know, what, what's the word? I don't know. Prisoners. <laughs> prisoners. The parade of prisoners being led to execution is increasing in frequency. Todd tells us that they used to be get two weeks to make a hat for the parade. 
that's just hard to even say. They, they get two weeks to make a hat for a prisoner to wear to, in their parade to their execution. Now they've been given one week, so we know that the parades have increased in frequency at least double. And now he's saying they're actually going to cut it down to even less than that. So whatever's happening in this world to cause maybe a hundred people to be paraded at a time to their execution in extravagant hats. Whatever's happening, it's happening more and more often. And not only are uh, Joan and Todd in the system that is enabling this to happen, they're they're fighting, but what they're fighting about is not the fact that a hundred people are being killed every week. Right. So they are... They do not seem troubled by the the reality of what's happening. They seem troubled by the perhaps the injustice in the hat making world. Yeah, uh, they need a they need a union of hat makers or something to negotiate how things are going. But they they don't particularly, at least at face value, have a lot of concern about the fact that they're making hats for people being led to their death. Right. The concern is about infrastructure and and proper business relationship and how they're getting the contracts that this organization is getting fed contracts from like a brother-in-law. And so Todd is, is all worked up about this and he just keeps saying he's like taking a moral high ground of like, I'm the only person who's paying attention to this around here. Why should my head be on the chopping block? Why should I go in to have this conversation with the boss and the journey that they go on in this scene um, is is Joan eventually kind of talking him into it or him doing it to impress her so that she will go out with him. Um, in the middle is the scene with the parade of the hats. And I think that juxtaposition is important. Um, the 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 fight that they're fighting, this kind of meta fight where they're 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 fighting injustice. You can't see my air quotes. They're fighting injustice while this other larger injustice is going on with their help the whole time. And that's a powerful theme. That's that's a theme that hits home in in different times and in different spaces. Um, it's, it's a scene that the audience can grapple with their own culpability with it. And uh, so that's that's what kind of landed true for me is that and I think helps to make the third scene make sense that they're that they've now engaged in some sort of war after after this moment um, is 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 they're they're fighting they're fighting a fight above the level of the actual problem on, on a problem that doesn't that that seems lesser than 100 people dying every week in the hats that they made. Right. I, I to to return to your point just before that, this idea that the parade of prisoners happens in the middle of this series of scenes between Joan and Todd is important because it makes two point six, the final scene between Joan and Todd, which occurs just after the parade of prisoners, have a couple of especially poignant, sharp exchanges we've seen them make these hats and they've been fighting the injustice of these hats we have no context for what's going on until the parade of prisoners that are being led to their execution and then we return to joan and todd with an entirely new view of what they're doing in the system they're participating in and again with no sense that they're concerned about the system of executions so they immediately after watching this and i'm just going to read the stage direction so you get a sense of what churchill's imagining 
after watching, quote, a procession of ragged, beaten, chained prisoners, each wearing a hat, on their way to execution. That's not quite the end of them, but that's where I'll stop the, the stage direction, quote. After watching that, we immediately hop into a back and forth about how wild it is that Joan won the hat competition in her first week of making hats. Yeah. I mean, that... Suddenly, I'm back to this hat-making world, and I'm just like, what? Wait, what? What? You're making hats to kill people with? And I have a very different relationship mm-hmm. with Joan the, and Todd the, than I had The realization that, that the hats... So she's made a hat that is then judged, that is then put into a museum. So you're, you're getting all this other information. Like, society is built around this. Like, it's these hats are going into museums for posterity to yeah. kind of hold hold this this uh, process that the society is a part of. Yeah, um, and, and then we return to this little this little subplot about the injustice in the hat-making world. Um, and Joan talks about how they, Todd has actually finally confronted the boss. And listen to what Todd says. I think I did impress a certain person that I, or I think it did impress a certain person that I was speaking from the high moral ground. I mean, right. a line like that, which before the parade of beaten, ragged, chained, bloody prisoners, I would have been like, okay, well, he's, he's fighting the system, man. He's speaking from a high moral ground. Way to go, Todd. I'm, I'm, I was totally sold on this subplot of hat unionization or whatever. <laughs> right. Suddenly, on the back end of this terrible parade, it seems so out of place to claim to be speaking from a high moral ground when you make hats for people to wear as they're being executed. Mm-hmm. It's It, it kind of speaks into this, like, not being aware of the systems that you, of oppression that you are a part of. Um, and you're, you're fighting these fights, you're feeling like you have a moral high position to stand on, that you can speak truth to power, but... Um, from the audience perspective where we are zoomed back from this moment, we see the system of oppression that this person is in. I think it's worth noting that Carol Churchill's work stands astride the fall of communism in, in Europe and the Berlin wall coming down. And, and she's certainly informed by that time frame in Europe. So, so noting the systems of oppression and noting how we are culpable in them, getting the audiences to note how characters are culpable in them and blind to them, I think is, is an important part of her work. And I think it's on display in this second scene break of this play. And part two, scene two, act two, whatever, learning all that I learn about this parade of people being executed, about these trials, it makes me question again what I supposedly thought I learned in act part scene one. Because we yeah. we know that in that, at least Harper, the aunt, claims that there's a group of people hiding and that she and her husband are helping them hide. But how is that group related then to this same, similar, totally different group of people under trial being executed several years later? Were, you know, is it true that Harper and her, and her husband were hiding the same people that are now being paraded, the same group, the same, I don't know if it's an ethnic group or a religious group or something like that, that is being killed in Act Scene Part 2? In which case, did Joan's allegiances, she seems so on board to help her aunt and her uncle at the end of Part 1, totally change by the time we reach Part 2? 
as society flipped and those people that were now hiding in Act Scene Part 1 have rebelled and taken over the government and are killing off the people who came after them in Act Scene Part 1, in which case that might explain some of Joan's indifference that she truly thinks these are the bad guys. We don't know, but it makes me question what I learned. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think... I think you're wise to question that, too. I mean, we're kind of getting into just our own interpretations at this point, which I'm okay with. Um, so <laughs> um, I, I think you're meant to question that initial scene. Certainly the way Joan reveals the information is is you could explain it away with a protecting of a younger child, but it's also could be explained away by just truth being sussed out of a person and eventually landing on a lie that works. And I yeah, think well, it, is it, that's what I was about to say too. What truth is being sussed out? Because as much as Harper claims they're helping somebody, her answers as to why the uncle was beating one of them bloody are evasive at best. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. It could be that she's straight out lying even when it seems like she's finally been forced to tell the truth. And they're not hiding these people from the government. They're Supplying capturing them, them in their shed so that they can get taken to be executed or put in a camp or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Although that option does then track with Harper's conversation towards the end. If you view uh, where Joan and Todd are at the end of the play as a part of some sort of fight they've that they're that they're stepping away from Todd is on leave Joan is trying to get away from the front they're not hat makers anymore there's a fight on and they're expressing some sadness about that Harper's kind of hardline support and anger at them for what she views as deserting um especially around Joan uh her deserting her post makes a little more sense if she's kind of the hardline been been with the prisoner killers all along if you if you think of them as suppliers of the prisoners at the beginning scene that that's a that's a way to synthesize a story out of those three scenes. Right, because it is hard to synthesize a story from one to three. Yeah. <laughs> they've been hiding, you know, if, if you take it face value, they've been hiding this religious, ethnic, something like that group that's being oppressed and slaughtered by the government or by a rival religious ethnic group, whatever, whatever, whoever they've been hiding from whoever in part one. It's hard to figure out how that becomes three. You know, it's like, uh, does that conflict between those two groups become a war that overtakes the globe in such a way that even animals and weather and gravity are on certain sides. Uh, it, it, it's hard to understand exactly how each part leads to another. And I don't know, but perhaps that's part of the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is it, you know, we, we just end up in these situations. We're thrown into, quote, several years later. And mm -hmm. it seems like the situation's totally changed. And yeah. we're left to try to pull together scraps and pieces of what history and what development we can to try to understand the context of a given situation. And I'm not sure we ever do. Yeah. But I think I, th I think it's an interesting question for, the t for whatever design team uh, approaches this, whatever collaboration team approaches this, to have to figure out a way, some something that you're telling, some sort of connection between them. Um, and and we're, we're talking around some of the, this play just like, for some reason, it's ambiguity set off all the sparks in my mind. So, so yeah, it's well, like- Yeah, I totally, I'd love yeah. to direct this play. Yeah. For all the ambiguity and wildness, that just seems like such an incredibly enticing challenge. Mm-hmm. 
I wonder if one of the common themes is what we allow ourselves to be distracted by, um, what we allow ourselves to, what we allow to take our attention away from a problem. Um, in the first scene, Joan knows there's a problem. <laughs> Someone's getting beaten. She she describes the shed filled with blood, but she allows the. I'm I'm gonna I'm 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 giving my one representation. There's many other representations, but she allows the lies of Harper to assuage her fear of the moment, her knowledge that something's wrong. In the second scene, society is putting people in hats and judging the hats and being sure that someone's awarded for the hats. And this whole complicated system is set up for the hat makers to uh, be sucked into. There's, there's justice to be had there. The way that contracts are negotiated could be fought for justice, which is hiding the fact that 100 people are dying every week. Right. It's it seems like part two, at least some of what that's the most easy to understand part for me. There's there's certainly a conflict between these sort of little squabbles that we have, these little injustices that we feel like we can conquer. And so we put energy and effort and emotional whatever into those conflicts in the midst of wild, seemingly untouchable systems of oppression that surround us and that we even participate in. Which is then brought home in scene, scene three, the, the, the conversation that they have around all these different animals and things joining in conflict and the complications around whose side are they on now? Well, oh, now they're on this side. No, 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 they switched sides last week. And, but then the dentists are now in Cuba or something like that. And, and, and that kind of game that is played of like just knowledge, knowledge being the distraction and debating knowledge around things kind of is 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 inoculating them to the fact that all somehow all of existence is at war with each other and being united in an attempt to kill people. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. For me, one of the themes that I can parse out from the little bit of everything that we get, this sort of smattering of worlds in these three parts, one of the themes that seems to run true for me is the elevating nature of the conflict that occurs, right? In part one, it's this sort of, it seems like this sort of local familial struggle and the children are indoctrinated in Joan, right? It becomes part of her growing up. That's how Harper articulates it, for her to learn what's going on. And then she declares allegiance like right away. Like, I'm going to help. I'll help you do this. I don't really understand the context or the consequences of my actions, but I'm in. And then in part two, we see art become involved in the conflict in a really notorious sort of disgusting way. Part, two, part, part of the reason why part two is so memorable and disgusting is that, you know, theater people are artists. We don't want to feel like we could be part of masking this sort of mass oppression and execution. But Churchill certainly is suggesting that we could. And art becomes part of what keeps this system of violence and, and attack going on. And then that's even further elevated in three when literally all creation, gravity and <laughs> Light and the deer and the bears are all on different sides. Mm-hmm. That's fa that's another fascinating way to do it too. If you kind of focus on the yeah the 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 slowly building uh, way that especially Joan then maybe that's that's then an argument for kind of watching a character go on a journey. But the way Joan walks through all three of these escalating uh, injustices. Right, and, and Joan herself is on an escalating journey, isn't she? In one, she's a child, and she's simply an observer. 
She observes what happens and then has to learn the truth of it. And then at the very end of that, she takes that step of escalation by wanting to help. In two, she's involved in the system, but in an indirect way, a very indirect way, in fact. Simply like <laughs> making the clothing, even at the most innocuous level, making the clothing for the people to wear on their way to execution. But she's certainly involved in that system. And then in three, she's a soldier. We know she's a soldier. She talks about the fact in a pretty blunt, terrible way. In fact, even as she was deserting, she had to kill like two cats because cats are on the other side and a child under five. Yeah. Apparently like children are also on a particular side in whatever global creational conflict we're in. So she too is on an escalating journey of participation in the violence. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and <laughs> yeah, the, which makes her monologue at the end, the weight of that monologue at the end, it's a two page monologue. It's the longest speech in the play. Um, longest single character talking make a lot, make the weight that it has make more sense as a result of that. The, her, her kind of journey through this escalation of her own culpability in systems of oppression allow her the space to kind of process out loud for us and for the other characters the kind of horror she had to walk past on the way to get here. I would say the other thing that I, I'm confident as much as you can be that the play is about is the, the lack of context to the violence sort of becomes part of the commentary on violence. In part one and two, act one and two, whatever, we don't know who the people are that are being hidden. We don't know who the people are that are being executed. But that doesn't seem to matter very much, exactly who's doing what. And then in three, that becomes a really pointed piece of commentary where who's on what side, these allegiances are constantly flipping. At one point, we hate deer. The next section, we love deer because they're on our side. And that is part of what Joan's final monologue is about. As she gets to the end of her monologue, she's talking about the march away as she's deserting. And this is part of her quote. She knows she's going to have to go across this river because there's cows apparently and cows are not on their side. So she's going to have to go across the river. She says, but I didn't know whose side the river was on. It might help me swim or it might drown me. In the middle, the current was running much faster. The water was brown. I didn't know if that meant anything. The lack of context to the conflict becomes part of the storytelling of the conflict itself, almost as if one of the things Carol Church was saying is ultimately the context of the violence we do to each other is so unimportant. It's the fact that we're doing violence to each other that satisfies some evil, unfortunate, primal part of what creation, not just humans, is, and that's so ingrained in the world that it almost doesn't matter, at least that's her commentary, it almost doesn't matter at all who or what we're doing violence to at any given point. That's just part of the way the system's built. I don't I don't know. Does something yeah. like that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and that just so many different categories of people are just kind of willy-nilly thrown against each other, th thrown kind of contextualize as enemies and thus are clashing like the categories of children under five of light of weather at one point and 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 weather in regions is considered an enemy like the weather in this region is on the side of the japanese is a line from this play um so so all of these different categories could be used to divide us to confuse us to push us towards violence toward each other um 
that doesn't get wrapped up by this play. I mean, that's where it leaves you, kind of, is, is, is that confusion around why all these different categories of things are against each other and how to read those categories of things um, yeah, and so their threat at, to you. At the end of this long monologue Joan gives at the end, the, the final lines of the script, she's still talking about having to cross the river. And she says, when you've just stepped in, in this case to the river, but I think it's a metaphor, when you've just stepped in, you can't tell what's going to happen, she says. The water laps round your ankles in any case. And of course, that's sort of the experience of the play, isn't it? I mean, one part after another, you just step in, into the middle of a world you know nothing about. And you have no idea what's going to happen. And as an audience member, as a person experiencing the story, you have no choice but to try to make connections, to try to emotionally get yourself attached to something so that you have some sort of followable journey. But you don't know whose side or what to be on. But the water laps around your ankles in any case. You're still in it, regardless of whether you know what's going to happen. You have any context for the experience. And so part two is really pointed then, right? That's exactly what happens to us. We step in into the middle of this hat-making controversy, the unionization, the injustice of hat-making, and we don't know what's going to happen, but we're into it. Okay, I'm on the side of these hat-makers. And then we learn that they've been making hats for an execution, and we've been perhaps on the wrong side this whole time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the river analogy is really poignant for that. This, like, being swept along by something, you don't really know exactly all the meanings that could be uh, associated with it, but you're getting wet anyway, and you you, you got to do it anyway. So, yeah, that's I think that's a fast—that that using that as the end of the play draws us into that that final moment of culpability, that final analogy of culpability. Right, and, and I suppose for somebody like Carol Churchill, who— as you've said, saw so much conflict and wrote so many stories about conflict in her plays. Uh, you know, Mad Forest is a great example of just something terrible that happened in the world. And she created this story about the fact that late in her career, she would write this play that's, that's sort of about how unimportant it is who we're fighting. It's the fact that we're fighting that that's the sharp point she wants to make. That makes some sense after watching the kinds of stories she's told, the world she's seen change. Yeah. What do you picture for this play? What sort of, I mean, is we, we did Magic Month last, last season, but like, is there magic in this play? How do you transition? Is it a straight play? Is it a drama? Is it uh, abstract? How do, you, how do you vision trying to tie these big themes we've been talking about into the action, which the action, which is, at times, fairly confusing. It's tough to to know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, it's just that's sort of an empty thing to say, but it's the reality. You just, I would suspect, production to production, the experience of the play is pretty, pretty, pretty different. What I would think has to be consistent among at least successful productions of the script is just a commitment to play it straight. You have to be willing to craft a world. Even if you don't know all the, you know, even if you think the script is fuzzy on the details of that world, you have to be willing to build a world that exists and let the characters commit earnestly to the story that's being told. Too much sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge about all these hats that we're making and this execution. I mean, I think that's going to uh, end up shaking the earnestness of the storytelling a little bit. You have to commit to what's going on and play it straight, I would think. 
Yeah, I agree. The commitment is is going to be essential. You have to kind of create a sense of trust in the actors <laughs> on stage and the audience that that where you're going, wh- wherever this river is going, it's going to mean something. Right. And and, and like in, in part three, it, it's not some sort of like metaphysical, philosophical discussion that Harper and Todd are having about the animals fighting. I mean, that's legitimately happening in this world. And they're yeah. really concerned about it. And it matters to them and it's important to them. I would think being willing to commit to that level of the script is going to have to exist for successful storytelling. You can't try to to play over it, right? Yeah, I agree. It'd, it'd be like po- talking like talking about politics for them or something like that. Something as equally real to us is crocodiles and whether they should be <laughs> viewed as universally evil or allied with. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that probably wraps up the time that we have to talk about Far Away. It's a bizarrely exciting script. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it has got some incredible images. I mean, that second part with the hats and the parade is, I, I mean, I've never even seen the play, but the experience of reading it and imagining it is burned in my mind. And I've, I've liked this play for a long, long time, and I, I always remember that piece of it i don't always remember one and three as clearly (laughs) they end up fuzzing a little bit if it's been a while but that part two is very clear to me that Mm -hmm. those those just striking images yeah striking images and lots of opportunities for actors to act um and and you don't need there's just so much context that you could or could not throw in so what the actors get to do with these lines is going to be fascinating great play for scenes if you're looking for scenes um so so yeah i i i was glad to have read it i'm glad to have gotten to kind of grapple with some of the themes if there are themes that you noticed in the play that we did not or resonances um if you have read the play if you've been in the play if you've watched the play any of those we'd love to keep talking with you about it you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter uh we also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com find us on any of those sites the username on the social media sites is at no script podcast we'd love to keep talking about far away by carol churchill with you and if you'd like to recommend our podcast to your family, to your friends, we would love that. That's a great way to support the show. You can send them to Podbean, where we're hosted, or to Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. One of the easiest ways to find us is just to connect with our Facebook page. We post a link to the new episode every Monday when it's released. We're halfway through mini-month. We got Woo-hoo! two down. We got two more to come, so stay tuned for next week and our next one-act play. But until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We will see you next time. See ya. See ya.